Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Caroline, I'm going to do things a little backward and start the podcast with a listener email. Whoa. I know. Hold on to your hats, <laughs> folks. So we got this email recently from Emma and she's 19 and in college and she wrote us with a request. She says, first, the backstory. My roommate and I discovered the popular band One Direction at the beginning of the school year. Neither of us had ever been huge boy band fans. But now we have more than 25 posters of these five boys <laughs> up in our dorm room. We have tickets to a concert of theirs over the summer, and we have wasted countless hours watching videos of them and looking at their faces. <laughs> we, <laughs> we also managed to get a few more of our friends to enthuse about them. What I'd like to know is why boy bands such as One Direction get to be so popular. Back in the 90s, we had Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and there have been many that have popped up and disappeared through time. But why? What makes them so appealing? Why don't they last very long? And what is it about them that pulls girls and guys in so much? I usually pride myself in being level-headed and mature, but put a picture of 1D in front of me, and I turn into a squealing 12-year-old girl. What's (laughs) up with that? Oh, Emma. I don't know. I, short answer, soft masculinity and comfortable homoeroticism. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> and the podcast is over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, first of all, Emma, thank you for your email. This episode is dedicated to you and your roommate and Harry Styles of yeah. One Direction. And, and his, his hair. And his hair. And his very large hair. So um, we're not going to be able to talk about... All of the boy bands. Yeah, sorry. We're going to go ahead and apologize and say, please don't key our cars. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was live tweeting some of the, the research. And uh, thanks to everyone who tweeted some boy band suggestions for me to listen to. Uh, but we're going to hit on the big names out there. And unfortunately, we can't even get into the entire history of yeah. boy bands. I mean, obviously, we, we, we'll hit on the Beatles and such. Mm-hmm. But... We really want to get into the more modern boy band era. But first, let's talk about how boy bands are totally back, Caroline. Yeah, and how we even knew this was happening. Um, I, I'm perpetually out of the loop as far as music goes, particularly if it is pop music and boy bands. So back in uh, 2012, spring 2012, One Direction became the first British group to top the Billboard 200 chart, a feat that not even the Beatles could pull off. They sold 176,000 copies of their album Up All Night in its first week of release. Meanwhile, The Wanted... I'm learning so much from all this research. The Wanted had a top 10 hit single, and the group Mindless Behaviors album debuted in the top 10. Yeah, speaking to the New York Times in 2012 about The Wanted in One Direction, uh, Sharon Datzer, who is the program director of Z100 in New York, said, quote, Boy bands are so back (laughs) in such a big way. I've been saying it for about a month now. Music is always very cyclical. We had the new kids on the block time and the NSYNC Backstreet Boys time, and now it's that time again. And some people also attribute the popularity of Justin Bieber mm-hmm. for getting producers thinking again about, oh, wait, young females listen to young boys singing and they buy lots of things. And one of those music moguls who had a big hand in bringing the boy band back in such a big way is Simon Cowell 
from formerly from American Idol and now with the X Factor over in the UK. And what he did was take these five boys who competed on the X Factor and he was like, you all should be in a band together (laughs) and put them all together. And they competed, but only came in third, I believe. But then he was like, it doesn't matter. Harry Styles, your hair is going to take you straight to the top of the (laughs) Billboard charts. And so he signed them to his music label and it's been pandemonium ever since. Right. But they came on the scene a little differently than did Lou Pearlman's uh, masterminding of Backstreet Boys in sync. It's the reversal of that pattern, you know, of releasing a single on the radio first, then taking them to the U.S. Instead, the label mounted a four-month marketing campaign to build a fan base through social media. They were very sneaky. They asked fans to sign petitions and enter video competitions to win a concert in their town, and I believe Dallas... One, the One Direction concert. Uh, but yeah, it worked. Facebook followers shot up. Requests poured into radio stations to play the songs before they even had the albums. So yeah, not not quite the same as the 90s bands. So even though One Direction you know, is using social media, obviously in a way that wouldn't have even been possible for NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, the One Direction songwriter, Carl Falk, admits that he stole the 1D sound from Backstreet Boys, claiming the new generation of boy band fans is too young to even remember. Which, wait a second. I feel so old. I do have gray hairs coming in, and I think that I sprout a few more when I read that. (laughs) Wait, yeah, because Emma, I think, even though she is a college student, she's old enough to remember Backstreet Boys. Well, sure, she might remember Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and of course everyone knows who Justin Timberlake is, Right. but does she know all the words to Backstreet's Back like this podcast co-host does? I know, I've had Backstreet Boys songs in my head all week. One more similar thing that still persists is racial dynamics. Kristen, in One Direction, the ethnic bad boy role that managers have crafted over the years is filled by Zayn Malid. Yeah, this was something that was posted about on the blog Racialicious, talking about how Zayn actually pulled his Twitter feed for, I think it was only a day, Mm -hmm. but still he took it down because he said that he had received so many uh, racial slurs. He's half Pakistani and Mm -hmm. Muslim, and they've never tried to hide that fact at all. But people, you know, have made horrible comments to him to the point that he took his stuff down. But this is something, the whole thing of having the, the darker skinned boy band member being cast as the mysterious one is the same kind of thing that happened with, say, AJ, who's Latino, Mm -hmm. in Backstreet Boys. Okay, I was going to, I'm glad you said that, because I was going to cite that example, but I wasn't sure which band he was in. It's Backstreet. Oh my God, come on. Okay, well, so then we have a whole issue of whether these new bands are edgier, whether they're, whether they're living on the edge more, or whether they're maybe a little bit softer. Uh, a story from Reuters in April 2012 argued that yes, they are edgier because the wanted is trying to set themselves apart by being uncensored about their drinking and partying. And of course, they use the we all play instruments argument. And they actually are managed by Bieber's manager. Yeah, and I will say, Watching the Wanted's video for Glad You Came, and yes, that is a double entendre, uh, that's showing them just partying mm-hmm. on a beach, I believe in Ibiza, and just, you know, being just really young and rowdy. Uh, I would, obviously, they're going for that bad boy image. Mm-hmm. But with One Direction, though, Amanda Hess, 
from Slate, and Alyssa Rosenberg at Think Progress and also The Atlantic would argue that, eh, not so much. Yeah, Amanda Hess's theory is that boy bands nowadays are less explicitly sexual because today's young women are free to see sex, love, and friendship as more interconnected. She says post-hookup culture, young women's relationships with men are more fun and casual and equitable. Yeah, and on her Slate post, she has all these screenshots to compare of... uh Videos from NSYNC and Backstreet where they're all, you know, clenching their fists and looking very pained and anguished because their love is so intense. <laughs> Whereas One Direction, you know, they're just bebopping around. They're bebopping around. You know, I'm suddenly 85 <laughs> in this where, podcast. Where, where's your butterscotch candy? <laughs> um, Alyssa Rosenberg over at The Atlantic does argue that they are less edgy and more lovey-dovey. She says 1D and the Wanted espouse a love-beats-all philosophy that's actually squeakier, cleaner, and simpler than that of the generation of manufactured male teen idols that preceded them a decade ago. Yeah, she says even for the wanted, you know, who are going for the whole bad boy thing, just want to get home to the girlfriends (laughs) at the end of the day. And she makes a good point about how One Direction's biggest hit, What Makes You Beautiful, is, quote, so worshipful that it feels smothering. And I do agree. I mean, I could see, though, if I were 12 Mm -hmm. and watching these boys frolic around on a beach telling me that I'm prettier than I actually know that I am, that I would totally get on board with all of that. But uh, it is kind of funny. I mean, to the point to where they're like, You're, the way you flip your hair drives me bonkers. It's my quote, not theirs. And then you just start obsessively flipping your hair. Yeah. And they would say, though, that 90s bands, in a very 90s kind of way, mm-hmm. were more earnest. Yeah, she said that their songs were full of doubt about the possibility of lasting relationships. Hence, the clenched fists and anguished faces versus the more casual, devil-may-care, I-have-big-hair attitude of Harry Styles. But at the same time, though, we can't talk about boy bands and not mention that some of the songs and some of the lyrics are a tad not-so-amazing and uplifting when you really listen to them, and not just for the more modern ones, even going back to the Monkees' Daydream Believer, which I love. Yeah, it's I do very like that catchy. Song. And yeah, Rosenberg, over in her post on thinkprogress.org, talks about the Monkees using condescending dismissiveness in Daydream Believer, something that had never occurred to me. But she cites the quote, Daydream Believer and a homecoming queen. She doesn't have any real concerns, does she, Monkees? Yeah, she also says that the Jackson 5 song, Stop, The Love You Save, is slut-shaming, uh, that NSYNC's girlfriend is textbook negging with lyrics such as, Does He Even Know You're Alive? And on uh, Backstreet's Back, the song that I can't get out of my head right now, <laughs> is odd and needy and the inverse of wooing. Um, and I had a couple of more uh-huh. examples, too. I, I, to me, the one that stands out the most from my personal boy band experience is from the band Five. And they had one hit, Baby When the Lights Go Out. And I can sing all of the chorus. Huh. I will not do it. Okay. But uh, it's, <laughs> maybe I should do it. But it's so, it's so creepy. It's talking about how when they're at a party and all the lights go out, babe, I swear you will succumb to me. Uh. So baby, come to me. Uh. When the lights go out, Mm. where it's like, whoa, five, hey, take a step back. And then even One Direction in their song, Little Things, they they say, you never want to know how much you weigh. You still have to squeeze into your jeans. 
but you're perfect to me. <laughs> Which is kind of backhanded yeah. as well. And then, of course, in The Wanted's Glad You Came, I mean, kind of everything about it. Mm-hmm. But also the, the standout line is, I'll hand you another drink. Drink it if you can. Oh, my God. <laughs> so just daring young women to get wasted. These are, their audience is such young girls, though. I know. Says the scandalized 85-year-old sitting across from you. Maybe I should bring my hard candy to the next episode. But okay, so let's, you know, we mentioned the monkeys. Let's look back at some of the history briefly of boy bands and where they came from. One major aspect of boy bands from the beginning has been dancing. The All had a piece on this in May 2012. They talked about how dancing among boy groups was introduced by Motown genius Barry Gordy, who hired vaudeville performer Charlie Atkins to teach his top acts like The Temptation, Smokey Robinson, and The Four Tops. Some dance moves. Yeah, and right there, with the mentions of Temptations, Four Tops, Smokey Robinson, uh, we have the first kind of tie-in to where these mostly all-white boy bands of today take a lot of cues from black male groups of not only Motown, but then moving up into R&B, which we'll touch on in a minute. But yeah, the, the dancing has always been a big thing, up until, though, these most modern boy bands, which... I mean, to me, like, yeah, was it kind of cheesy? All of the choreographed dance moves and dance outfits, dance outfits that the boy the boy bands of our day mm-hmm. would always do. Yeah, but the, no more for One Direction. What do they the do wanted. on stage then? If they, because I know like the Wanted plays instruments, but well, on stage they might have more uh, choreographed numbers, but in their videos, oh. they're just prancing around, prancing. They're pouring, you know, they're doing keg stands, not actually keg stands, but they're drinking out of solo cups, wink, oh, wink. Oh. Um, Maybe it's, it's lemonade. I, I, well, actually, I don't think The Wanted even wants you to think that it's lemonade because <laughs> they are just such bad boys. But going back, though, to the dance moves, um, all of that Motown dancing set the precedent that carried into the 70s when even boy bands that played instruments, such as the Osmonds and Jackson 5, incorporated dancing into live sets and TV appearances. And speaking of TV appearances, Caroline. Yeah, February 9th, 1964, the Beatles perform on Ed Sullivan. And oh, my God, the Internet will yell at us so much for saying that the Beatles are a boy band because they weren't formed by some mastermind like Simon Cowell. You know, they met organically playing instruments at school and in clubs. But they did have those mop tops and dressed the same and were, you know, coordinated on stage. And they inspired subsequent boy bands such as the Monkees that were straight up assembled for a television show around Davy Jones, who recently passed away. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Davy Jones. And that became a blueprint for future boy bands of the more manufactured sort that we would think of today. And then in the 70s, we have bands like Jackson 5 that in 1970 had four number one hit singles. And then in the 70s, we also have the very take-home-to-mom Osmonds. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were a clean-cut Mormon quintet. I believe Donny Osmond was a part of the Osmonds. And in 1977, I think this has to be the longest-running boy band of all time get started. Yeah, Menudo starts its 32-year stint in Puerto Rico. And, of course, their most famous member, to me anyway, is Ricky Martin. Yes. He joined in the 80s, I believe, when he was 13. And he beat out Howie, who ended up in the Backstreet Boys 
for a gig. Now, who got the better deal? Interesting. I don't know. I'd say Ricky Martin. Well, okay, so we mentioned how, you know, African-American groups, uh, doo-wop groups, Barry Gordy, and we mentioned how these groups really kind of paved the way for these white boy bands to come along. Well, one of those trailblazers in 1983 is New Edition. It's a Boston R&B group credited with the boy band crazes of the next 20 years. Yeah, Candy Girl, I wish could be playing right now <laughs> in the background because it is such a good song. But they were groomed by this guy named Maurice Starr, who later developed another Boston group you might have heard of called New Kids on the Block. Swoon. Jordan was my favorite. Yeah, in 1984, Starr basically takes the new edition model and is like, hey, I'm going to do this with a group of Boston white kids. And so he puts together... N-K-O-T-B, with Jordan, Joey, Donnie, Danny, and John. And I was too young to be a real diehard New Kids fan, but my Come older... Come on, I'm only a year older than you. I Well, I just didn't... I wasn't, it wasn't in your sphere. It was not in my sphere, but it was in my older sister's sphere. Yeah. And I remember she got this Coke brand uh, New Kids poster in the mail, and she was so excited about it. It was her prized possession. <laughs> and I can't remember who her favorite was, but... Anyway, it took a little while, though, for New Kids to ascend to stardom. Uh, it wasn't until their second album in 1988 was released, Hanging Tough. That's Hanging so- Tough. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I totally interrupted you to sing that. But it was released that year, and it sold it sold 17 million copies. And in 1990, their album Step by Step went triple platinum. But a year later... We have the first album released from another very influential boy band, Boys to Men. They released Cooley High Harmony, and they would uh, go on to win four Grammys and release more than ten multi-platinum albums and get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah, so in 1993, skipping forward a little bit, Lou Pearlman, famous manager and con man, formed the Backstreet Boys, which I never knew. They were named after a flea market in Orlando. So he held auditions in Orlando. And this pretty much sets off our modern era of crazy boy band fans and everything. Yeah, because Perlman essentially saw what Star was doing and all the money that he was making mm-hmm. from New Edition and then New Kids and was like, hey, I could totally do this, which he also said later in his career when he started a Ponzi scheme. That's for another podcast, maybe. Right, yeah. The the story about Lou Pearlman goes on forever, and it's fascinating and creepy. But um, in 1994, uh, a song that I could not get out of my head for approximately three years uh, debuted at number one. That's R&B group All for One, I Swear. I Swear. Oh, my God. I, like, couldn't listen to it for the rest of the 90s because it would get in my head. Um, so in 1995, Pearlman turns around and forms In Sync and sends them on a European tour to get all of that promotion before he brought them over to the U.S. And let me tell you, the Germans love some Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah? Oh, oh yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, in 1996, we have Atlanta Quartet 112, who got their start on Diddy's Bad Boy Records. And really, I mean, you'll you'll notice, it's very apparent, that these are just, that's one of just a few African-American groups listed in all this. Well, yeah, because basically, the you know, the these white boy bands just took uh, the blueprint established by these earlier R&B groups and were like, oh... We, we will we will sing to these legions of young girls. Um, now, in 1997, though, <laughs> this, this one has a special place in my heart, and uh, it was Hanson. 
Hanson came out. They're less traditional because they're three brothers. They're like the early Jonas brothers. Right. And of course, their song was Mbop. And I thought that they were so cool because they were homeschooled. And I was like, wow, that's, they're, they're just like me. They're weird, just like me. Except they're millionaires. But by this point, in 1997, this is when Backstreet's blowing up. The NSYNC rivalry with Backstreet is picking up because, you know, they're starting to blow up. 98 Degrees comes out and releases its first album, which was signed to Motown Records, interestingly, in a throwback mm-hmm. there. Um, and so, yeah, in the late 90s, we have the reign of the boy bands. And all the music critics are subsequently pulling their hair out because <laughs> all of the hit songs are these kind of bubblegum pop, super produced pieces of, uh, well, they would say music trash because it's like, oh, Backstreet, that's not music. Whereas a lot of these, you know, very talented vocal performers are saying, hey, we're, we're doing, you know, we're making we're making good music, right? Yeah, just because Lou Pearlman is pulling the strings doesn't mean that we're not good musicians. Well, and that's a question, though. The the whole uh, dismissal, immediate dismissal of boy bands is something that Gail Wald looked into in her paper, Teeny Bopper Music and the Girling of Boy Bands. It was published in the journal Genders in 2002. And she raises the question of whether we think that boy bands are automatically just kind of stupid because their fans are girls. Yeah, she talks about a definite gendered hierarchy of high and low popular culture that specifically devalues the music consumed by teenage girls. And she says it's based on the notions of fickleness, superficiality, and aesthetic bankruptcy of the material forms that girls' desires take in popular culture. You know, because we're buying sleeping bags with the new kids on the block on them, or we're buying all these posters of the Jonas Brothers and things like that. Well, she also points out, too, with this whole girling of the boy band, that they symbolically feminize the male vocal groups that have the special appeal for young female consumers. We think of them as something for girls. And in driving home this point about how dismissive we are of boy bands, she cites um, a piece by New York Times music writer John Perrielas. And this was back from the Backstreet Days. He wrote, when it's directed at males, that squeal signifies romantic fantasy while it tests out some newly active hormonal responses. Directed at females, it's a squeal of sisterly solidarity and fashion approval. And it's drowning out anything more mature audiences had in mind. I have to give an eye roll. I understand. I'm not a big boy band person. I never was, aside from New Kids on the Block or and Boys to Men. Let's be real. But, I mean, we've always had these bands, and it just seems like rehashing old gripes when music critics are just like, ugh, gross, little girls like it. It's like, all right, come on, we've always had boy bands. Well, and then it gets into, you know, the bigger questions of the whole, you know, selling out of the music, if it's really music. I mean, the fact, you know, today with The Wanted, uh, that they, and with One Direction, that they have a stronger hand in the music that they play and produce, even though all the songs that One Direction has written among themselves, none of them have been released as singles. But it is it is kind of interesting when you step back and think about why we tend to dislike boy band music so much. And then also this idea of the girlish type of masculinity. It's like it takes all of this sexuality that they're obviously exhibiting Mm -hmm. and somehow making it quote-unquote safe 
Right. Well, they are. She writes that they're taking black performance styles of the 80s, which were more frank and staunchly heterosexual and makes it, yeah, like you said, softer and safer. And fans use that as a way to negotiate their own fluid gender and sexual desires. Well, and that also brings up this racial question as well that some critics have brought up in terms of how white these crazy popular boy band empires are in that, you know, well, are we... Are, are they quote unquote safer or more sellable to these legions of female fans because they are white? Because we still are uncomfortable with that black masculinity because it would inherently be too frank or too strong. So that's something also to think about in all of this. Yeah. And kind of how, like with which we brought up at the top of the podcast with One Direction, how a lot of times the darker skin members of groups are characterized as the mysterious bad boy. Why is that? Why does that have to be? I don't know. Well, so we mentioned that, you know, fans are using this, this softer version of masculinity to kind of figure out their own raging hormones. Sociologist Mark McCormick for the Oxford University Press blog in July 2012 wrote about One Direction in particular redefining modern masculinity, saying that their open displays of emotion actually helped to make them famous. He said there's no homophobia among these young guys. They actively thanked their gay fans and even performed at a gay club in London. He said that these kids model and mirror the gendered behaviors of today's youth, and they're part of a significant change in attitudes toward homosexuality. Yeah, and in the same way that, you know, a lot of times when we think about girls' crushes on boy bands, they're assumed to be kind of a way for girls to negotiate their these first feelings of their their blossoming sexuality but in you know and that's in a very kind of heteronormative box but in the same way boy bands have always had gay boy fans as well there was a 2000 article in the advocate talking about this and they cited mike glatz who at the time was the managing editor of the magazine xy which was uh, for gay youth and he said all these bands have always had young gay admirers now there are media outlets that represent young gay culture and provide an opportunity for young gay people to be more vocal and um, some say too that since everything is driven so much on social media now and all of these websites that that facilitates even more um, I guess adoration among gay fans that can you know access not just the music but also you know all of the different kind of rituals that girls have with boy bands including fanfic Pop, oh, yeah. pop slash fiction is apparently huge and apparently a lot with uh, One Direction to the point that one girl who wrote uh, a, a one story about a love triangle between her and two members of One Direction got a book deal from it from like Penguin Books. Anyway. Hmm. Man, you can make money off of these boy bands. Yeah, you can. I had no idea. Well, uh, Jennifer Margaret Smith over at a blog from the University of Wisconsin in April 2012 wrote about what she called comfortable homoeroticism and called the interpersonal relationships, the interactions between the guys of bands like One Direction as a variation on the bromance trend, which we've talked about. Very, very bro-y. And yet these guys are a lot more comfortable exhibiting their affection for each other. She said that, quote, they can play with their queerness because their heterosexuality is constantly reinforced, both in the reports of their personal lives, like when Harry Styles dated Taylor Swift, and in their aggressively heteronormative song lyrics. 
Yeah, she talks about how they hug, grope, fall asleep on each other constantly, pretend to kiss each other for laughs, and even joke about queer relationships between them. So, um, you know, this is another way that, you know, I kind of like the idea, though, of One Direction at least being more open about all of that Mm -hmm. as being kind of that bridge between childhood and sexual maturity, not just for female fans, but for male fans as well. I think that's great that they openly thank their gay fans and know that they're a strong part of their, their fan base. Yeah. So even though songs like What Makes You Beautiful might not have the most lyrical depth, there's obviously a lot within boy band history and, you know, why they exist and why they do hold such appeal that, you know, that we can kind of learn about, I don't know, like girlhood, boyhood. Well, yeah, I mean, I honestly never, I mean, well, because I just don't think about boy bands, but I never thought about the gendered aspects, the racial aspects, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, just like they repackaged Elvis as a white version of black music back in the day, they're doing the same thing and they have been doing the same thing for decades with these boy groups. But my only question, though, is that in the same way that, you know, boy bands seem to facilitate this kind of opening of girl, girlish sexuality, if that makes sense, I want to know how music or if music facilitates the same thing in Boys, and not just gay boys. I'm talking about like when we think of more boy music, you know. Or is quote unquote boy music considered neutral and therefore has no effect on boys? But because boy bands are for girls, yeah. then it has this effect, and the boy bands themselves are feminized because of that gendered hierarchy mm-hmm. in pop culture. Astute observation, Caroline. Mm, thank you. Well, I think it's now time to turn it over to our listeners, and see what they think about boy bands. Uh, who's your favorite? Um, do you find any other uh, creepy lyrics as well? We would be happy to hear about. Do you have any any boy band feedback in particular you, you'd like, Caroline? Who was your favorite in any of them? In any of them at all. Who was uh, your favorite boy bander? And if you're in a boy band, Harry Styles, if you're listening... You can go ahead and write in. How heavy is your hair? (laughs) How much product is in that? Dot com is where you can send your email. And now we got a couple of letters in response to our episode on tampons and toxic shock syndrome. This one's from Jamie. She said, when I started using tampons, my mom frequently warned me not to wear them to bed because I would get toxic shock and die. I know, aren't moms the worst? I never asked any questions about what it was or why I would die. These warnings didn't stop me from wearing them to bed, but rather scared me into thinking that I would die in my sleep. I'm 25 now and sometimes still worry about this silent killer as I saw it. But now, thanks to you gals, I think I can sleep a bit easier. I think it's craziness that I never researched this on my own or even asked questions before. Thank goodness for you girls. Great job. Thanks. And thank you, Jamie. I'm glad we could help, and I hope you're sleeping better after all these years. Well, I've got one here from Allison about a bit of a tampon horror story as well. And she says, like Caroline, my mom never gave me the talk, and instead I got to read her romance novels. (laughs) So, I was on vacation with a friend and her mom was at the beach. Of course, periods have perfect timing and I started right then and I was all in a tizzy. What to do because you can't wear a pad in a bathing suit. So I decided it was time to use a tampon. As you might imagine, since we didn't talk about sex, my mom never talked to me about tampons, so I had no clue how to use them. 
Cue me in a porta potty in the parking lot by the beach, trying to insert my first tampon for 20 agonizing minutes. I'm in tears because I can't figure out this labyrinth called a vagina, and I'm shaking because I'm nervous and embarrassed that my friend and her mom are waiting on me. Oh, it was terrible. I finally made myself calm down and reread the instructions for the 12th time and figured out that I wasn't doing the whole angle thing and just basically stabbing myself repeatedly, trying to shove this piece of cardboard into me at a 90-degree angle to the ground. Insertion complete, I finally exited that porta potty of terror and went and had fun at the beach. Yay, happy ending. Sorry if this was a little more info than you wanted. Love the show! And I loved that story. Oh, I'm glad you figured it out. Oh, I sympathize. Yeah, me too. It, that, the, the first time is usually a memorable time uh. for all of the wrong reasons. <laughs> so if you have any tampon horror stories or boy band love stories to send our way, momstuffatdiscovery.com is our email address. You can also message us on Facebook. Tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And while you're at it, you can follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr. Dot com. And as always, you can make yourself smarter by heading over to our website, itshowstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Howstuffworks.com.